If you remember our study last week, we uh, talked about how there was darkness over the land from noon until three of that day of the crucifixion, and uh, we did some biblical theology in terms of uh, the crown of thorns and Psalm 22, and uh, some of you went beyond that and did some good thinking and biblical theology in terms of the darkness itself, and uh, talked about how uh, there was darkness at various times where God came and intervened, and it reminded you of that, and that's, that's, uh, that's good thinking in terms of darkness at the creation, and God intervenes, and then in the end, in the last book of the Bible, we see that when Christ returns, there will be no more need for a son. Well, there's another place where it talks about darkness, and that's clear back in Genesis 15. And we have this very vivid and uh, somewhat mysterious scene between God and Abram. And it is basically where God is making a promise to Abram, a covenant. And he was using the form that was often used in that day when an agreement was made between two people. And I want to read you a portion of this, for background of what we're talking about today in Genesis 15 Verse 9, it says, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two. It's always amazing to me when we see uh, uh, just a little phrase in Scripture. He cut them in half. And and then it goes on. Well, I mean, cutting a heifer, uh, a goat and a ram, that's a big deal. And so we have this picture of a very bloody scene, but these animals cut in half and uh, arrange the halves opposite each other. So there they are, one half on one side and one on the other. As the sun was setting, here comes the darkness, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And now God makes the covenant with Abram. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Passed between the pieces. Now, as I say, that seems somewhat mysterious. Uh, what, what was going on here? Well, the the blazing torch and smoking fire pot, that was God showing himself. And what did he do? Here he's making this covenant with Abram. He's making a promise to him. And typically, the two uh, making an agreement would walk between these severed halves of these animals. And what they were saying as they walked between those halves in that bloody path was if I don't keep my part of this agreement, 
May I be as these animals are. In other words, it's a promise I'm going to keep because I should just be chopped in half if I don't keep it. Now, the scene we have here is it's not Abram going through, Abram who later became Abraham, going between these, but it is God going between these. Now, God doesn't have to do that. But he is saying, this is how faithful I am to my promises. That if I were not to keep them, may I be as these animals cut, rent into. I want you to put that on a side burner, just by way of background, to what we are going to see today as we continue to look at the death of Jesus on the cross in preparation for next week. We're going to begin reading in verse 33 of Mark 15. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely, this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee... These women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you help us in these moments to hear what you have to say for our lives, for our souls? Will you grow us in our faith? We look to you for this in Jesus' name. Now, what we're going to do is, uh, you might remember that I had read part of that passage last week, and we, we ended with that, and we're going to pick up where we left off. 
And I want us to look at these actual last words. If you look in verse 37. Now again, here is a classic Mark, Gospel of Mark, where he just spares the details. We just don't really, we don't see a whole lot here. It says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. He doesn't tell us what Jesus says here. And so we go over to the Gospel of John. In John 19, Jesus said, here's the loud cry, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, first of all, I want you to notice it says, he gave up his spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, you kind of have to put all the Gospels together to get the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. The Gospel of Luke uh, adds the seventh word, what's usually called the seventh word from the cross, and that is, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So what's, what's important about that in terms of him giving up his spirit? Well, who's the one in control? Jesus is still, at this moment, absolutely the one in control. No one took his life from him. Now, the scripture says this. In another context, in Psalm 139, all of the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, that's talking, I interpret that as talking about our lives, that every single day is ordained for us before one of them comes to be. But if that's talking about our lives, how much more absolute is that? Certainly talking about uh, Jesus' life. And who is the one that ordains all of those days before one of them comes to be? It's the Father. And so what we know is that uh, Jesus was not going to die one moment before he accomplished what he came to do. And so even these last words were a part of that. Now that brings us to what Mark calls with a loud cry. What... uh, What was he saying there? Now, I have shared this with you, and I always share it with our inquirers' uh, classes. But I want to talk about it in context here. When he said, it is finished, he shouted out, it is finished. Now, in the original language, the word, and it is a a word there that's used is... uh, commercial word. Now, it can, there can be other translations. For instance, it is fulfilled, it's complete, meaning the prophecy is fulfilled, his work was complete, absolutely. But I 
find it fascinating that how this word is, was used uh, commercially, and here's how. It wouldn't necessarily come across to them as it's finished, because in commerce, if that word was used, it meant paid for, or paid in full. Now, this week I got a tax bill on a vehicle that was purchased and thought I had paid it, but I saw the envelope. I thought, oh, what, what now? <laughs> you know, what's this coming? And I opened it up, and it actually, across it, said, paid. And it was like, oh, good. <laughs> it's not something else I've got to pay. And, and that's generally our reaction when we hear, oh, paid in full. I mean, isn't that, that's just a good feeling at that point. Now, so Jesus is on the cross. And at the very end, with a loud voice, and you can know that though there was probably hubbub going on around because of the soldiers and that kind of thing, when Jesus spoke up, people were listening. And he cries out, It has been paid in full. That's what he came to do. To pay for our sins in full. Remember, as it said up in verse 33, this was at the ninth hour, darkness covered the land for the last three hours. Jesus says, it is finished, it's paid in full, while all over Jerusalem, Passover lambs are being sacrificed. And Paul says, Christ is our Passover. All of those lambs that they had sacrificed from way back in the Old Testament pointed to what was taking place that day during Passover in Jerusalem. But none of those lambs could ever really pay for sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, paid for our sin in full. Once and for all, a one-time thing. Instead of the other lambs that every year, you know, it was every year we got to come back and do this. we got to do this again. we got to do it again. But when Christ died, that was it. That's why on our cross, we don't have Jesus hanging there. Because he did it once and for all. So the cross is now empty. Now, it's one thing for Jesus to proclaim it. But how do we know the Father agrees? Because after all, isn't he the one that's got to be satisfied? That has to stamp it paid in full? Look at what happens next. Verse 38, the way to God is opened up. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top 
to bottom. Now, what difference does it make that the curtain in the temple is torn? Well, historically, this curtain, it goes back to, again, the Old Testament, uh, the tabernacle. They were instructed to build a tabernacle in their midst, a temporary temple, as it were. And it was always as signified uh, God's presence with them. And there was inside the tabernacle an inner sanctum, a holy of holies. Only one man was allowed to enter, and only once a year. It was the high priest. He entered on the Day of Atonement. He would uh, take a small bowl of blood from an animal. He'd walk carefully, expectantly, into the Holy of Holies. Other priests would pull back the curtain for him to go and then close it again. He went into that room containing the mercy seat and poured out the blood on the grail that was there. When God saw the blood poured out as a sacrifice for man's sin, he was pleased to accept it and granted forgiveness. For then, all of that was pointing to another day, though. At Christ's death, let's go back up to Mark, at Christ's death, that veil that is now in the temple is torn from the top to the bottom. Now, obviously, it's not by man, and that's at least a part of that point, there would have been priests around. And if it was torn from the bottom to the top, they would have said, oh yeah, so what? Somebody came in and tore it. I mean, they would have been upset, but they could have explained it away. But evidently it was known that it tore from the top to the bottom, meaning that God opened the way to this holy of holies that was previously closed off. But at the death of Christ, it was opened up. Now, man no longer needed a human representative to go before God on his behalf. Now, remember back to our opening account, the one I told you to put on the Side burner. God passing between the animals, as it were, putting a curse on himself. If he didn't keep the covenant, he would be ripped apart like the animals. Now, instead of God being ripped apart because of what Jesus did, the curtain is torn apart to make the way for man. The writer of Hebrews pulls this together. We're going to hear more from this passage Thursday evening. But in Hebrews 10, it says this in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of 
Jesus. Remember, that's just what we're talking about. You, you can now go through that. By a new and living way opened us, uh, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. So the covenant curse rips apart the barrier that kept God's people away from him because of their sins. And now we can have a face-to-face kind of intimacy with God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Now we go and God welcomes because we go through Jesus and he's made the way. God showed he accepted it by ripping the veil apart and making a way for us to go to the Father. So what happened when the veil was torn? I want you to see one of the immediate results as we see a heart changed. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is one of the first fruits after Jesus actually died. Here's the centurion. He's the expert in the affairs of death, of torture. That was his job. He did it often, hardened to it, seeing it so often, skilled at it, skilled at killing, at execution. And then he makes this confession as a result of observing what happened here. Now, he might have been there the whole time. If he was, he would have seen Jesus in the garden, being betrayed, how he responded. He would have seen Jesus being uh, taken to the various trials. He would have seen and understood that these were unrighteous and unusual trials. He would have seen him being beaten and tortured and mocked with the robe, the staff, the crown of thorns. He would have seen him being put on the cross, lifted high for all to see, and he would have heard those seven words from the cross, those seven phrases including Jesus making sure his mother was taken care of, asking forgiveness for those who murdered him, interacting with the thieves on the cross, and talking with the Father. It says... He heard his cry and saw how he died. 
The centurion saw all of that. Now he knew what unrighteousness looked like. He saw it all the time. He saw it in those being executed. He saw it in his own soldiers, in all likelihood, in himself. He knew what unrighteousness looked like. But he saw righteousness. God opened his eyes. And he saw the righteous one. And listening to his every word, including, Father, into your hands, I permit my spirit answered by an earthquake, as it says in Matthew. And then he, he confesses him. Now, why do you think the centurion proclaimed that he was the son of God? The son. Well, he heard, he heard in the trial at Pilate's judgment seat that that was stated and he was acknowledging it. So what did it mean in his life? Well, there was a risk to himself, but there was also the contrast between him and the other soldiers, probably a few feet away, gambling while this death, these deaths, we're going on. But it should show us also, and I hope encourage you, that there is no one beyond salvation. And so those people in your family that you know need Christ, that you wouldn't put in the same category as this executioner, but you know they need Christ. They are not beyond hope. There is hope in the presence of Christ. Last year when we were in England to visit our church workers there, in England you can actually see remnants of the Roman Empire. You can see walls that were built during this era. You can see even little pieces of the Roman road, the famous Roman road. That was, became a part of the Roman Empire. We went to one cathedral, and the tradition was that in that area, Christianity actually came to that area through the Roman soldiers. And tradition says it, it was because those who were stationed in that part of England were actually the same ones, the same company that was stationed at the cross. And they were later sent to England. Wouldn't that just be like God? in his providence to use something that awful and use this soldier, the executioner, to take his gospel to a place that otherwise may not have heard from a natural perspective. I want to read to you in closing just the last 
portion of this passage. Verse 42. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So here, today, we will leave Jesus. For every other religion in this world, every other philosophy... This would be the end of the story. Whether it's Muhammad or Buddha, Joseph Smith, Karl Marx, their stories, for all practical purposes, end at their grave. For us, Easter is coming. And so with Paul, I would say, brethren, do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And next week, we will celebrate. Let's bow together. curtain was torn in two, dead or raised to life, finished, was the victory cry. We thank you, Lord, for that power of the cross that really is the power of Christ. We thank you for our Passover lamb that finished his work that fulfilled all the prophecy, that completed what he came to do when he paid in full. We give you all praise, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.